Well, hello and welcome to this edition of Virtues for the Times, a feature podcast brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. My name's Nick Zimmerin, your host of this series, exploring the significant ethical questions being raised in a world affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through our research insights, as well as the field expertise we draw upon via guest interviews and focused discussion, we hope to contribute to these challenging times by fostering greater ethical awareness in social and professional life. Now, some of the immediate challenges around COVID-19 are, of course, healthcare-related, but today we're going to focus on a different aspect of life amidst the global pandemic, and this has to do with the information environment we find ourselves in. Work and social situations have changed for many of us, and for the most part, for those of us who are fortunate to have some internet connection, the internet is where we go to to access up-to-date information relevant to the crisis. So given that we rely on clear and useful information to make wise decisions in times like this, it's important to check sources, but as people who participate in the online space, it's equally significant to be aware that our behaviour and speech online can go some way in making our online informational environment virtuous or vicious. So it's incredibly important to be able to think well about the moral and epistemic quality of the online environments we find ourselves in to think creatively about how we conduct ourselves online so that we might be able to improve our behaviour. It's on this topic that we've asked Tim Smart to join us today. Tim Smart is a research associate in the Institute for Ethics and Society. He's co-convener with Dr. Annette Pietzevol of the Moral Philosophy and Ethics Education Research Program. And some of Tim's research focuses on epistemology, ethics, decision theory, and we'll be considering these shortly in the context of COVID. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. Thanks very much for having me. Tim, I mentioned epistemology before. It is a word that gets thrown around a lot in, in philosophy. So I wanted to start our discussion, uh, given that this is your one of your areas of research. If you could start by telling us a little bit about what epistemology means precisely. Yes. Um, epistemology is one of the funnier words in philosophy, I suppose. My mum's a doctor and she hmm. always asks me how my study in epidemiology <laughs> is going. Which is actually quite re- relevant right now, right? Yeah, yeah. which that's <laughs> so, so, the more useful skill right now. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, epistemology, it's from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. And so it's the study of knowledge. So the philosophical study of knowledge and related concepts. So belief rationality, things like that. In particular, it studies rational belief. There's another branch of philosophy which studies rational action. So yeah, epistemology is the philosophical study of knowledge and rational belief. So we can learn many things about the world, but also things about how knowledge itself works. Like for example, that our own misconceptions or misinformation can be obstacles for obtaining knowledge. So tell us a bit about what it means to have a good approach to knowledge or in the philosophical jargon, epistemic virtue? So I think there's two ways to think about what an epistemic virtue is. And certainly people who research and theorize about this topic uh, split the concept up into kind of these two senses, and then there's different work which goes on in either um, camp. But we can say something general about the topic to begin with. So in general, an epistemic virtue is any kind of feature of one's mental life that's conducive to epistemic success. Epistemic success is a really um, weird phrase, and I use that word because it's an abstract topic, and there's a lot of different content that you could put right. in there. So, in particular, because people have philosophers have pretty different views about what mm. you should, your beliefs should be trying to do, or what make your beliefs good. So, some people think your beliefs should just be true, 
then other right. philosophers have a more demanding conception of what your beliefs should be trying to do. And uh, they say that if you're a responsible agent, your beliefs should not only be true, but they should be rationally held. You should have acquired them in a rational way such that if I'm like, Hey Nick, why do you believe this? You can say something more than, well, it's true, but you can tell me something about how you rationally acquired it, how you have arrived kind of, there. Yeah. How you have yeah. some kind of justification for why you have to believe that when you say uh, epistemic success tell me if i'm roughly getting this right here to me it's, it's sort of like yeah how you become good at thinking well based on the fact that your thoughts are, are true and justified and rational then you have some degree of epistemic success is that kind of roughly in the ballpark of what we're talking about? absolutely and then people could though they just have like a big debate about like exactly what it what epistemic success is for creatures like us so maybe your belief should just try to be true maybe your belief should try to be rationally held and then there's even a more demanding conception which says that your belief should not only be true not only be rationally held but that they should rise to the level of having some other status so perhaps being knowledge okay. or constituting genuine understanding or insight on a topic so anyway you, we can leave that kind of broad so whatever you happen to think epistemic success is because all these different views have um, have defenders and epistemic virtue is just some feature of one's mental life hmm. that makes it more likely that you're going to, your beliefs are going to be true or your beliefs are going to amount to okay. knowledge or understanding or something like that. And then you can sort of take that in two different directions or the research has been done in two different directions on trying to unpack that. So one way people have, have thought about this is that epistemic or intellectual virtues are those bits of our cognitive life, which are just our, which are just the most reliable things we have for forming good beliefs. And these theorists have tend to focus on the faculties that we naturally have. So our faculties like perception, our faculties like memory, our faculties like our introspective awareness of our own thoughts, emotions, desires, states. And they say that, because you'll of course remember that one feature of a virtue in general is that it's a skill that's reliable across contexts and across time. And so some theorists have said that the skills that we have, which are most reliable across time and across contexts for acquiring um, true beliefs or beliefs which amount to knowledge or something like that, are these are certain faculties which agents like us come equipped with our memories, our perceptions, or things like that. And then so people have started, some people have theorized about how we should understand those um, faculties, how we might try to improve them. And they use the term intellectual or epistemic virtue to re refer to those most reliable features of our mental life for acquiring good beliefs. One thing that strikes me as you were explaining that is that I suppose before we get on our way to having these skills of knowledge, you know, of thinking well, of testing our beliefs and so on, we, we sort of have to be aware first that this might be a good thing to pursue. Do, do you think it sort of works in such a way or does the, does the literature say that it works in such a way that, that people uh, realize it's a good thing to have and they generally want to have it or, or are there some obstacles on the way? Yeah, the idea is that we're not cognitively perfect. We're not omniscient. And so the kind of guiding light of this program has been to figure out what are just our best faculties and then how can we prioritize those in thinking about how we acquire knowledge, how we transmit knowledge to other people, how we encode knowledge. Um, how we try to reason about the world. And so if it turns out some of our faculties like perception, memory, introspection are generally reliable, then you should, when you can, you should defer to those. And then if our other, other faculties we have, like say your gut feel or something <laughs> is like as likely to be right as wrong, then 
that's not reliable, right? In one context, it might be, it might work fine. In another context, it'll misfire and you'll end up with a really bad belief. Um, so you should not, you should, you should discount what those uh, faculties tell you about the world. That's the, that's the general idea. That's kind of one way of understanding epistemic virtue. What, yeah, what else is there available? Yeah. So then there's a, so that one I just described, if you want to learn a um, fancy word is called virtue reliabilism. And the second one I'm going to describe to you is called virtue responsibilism. And it's been the probably, probably the more fruitful one in recent years. And these days, people who talk about epistemic and intellectual virtues tend to fall into this category, which I'm just going to tell you, tell you about. So the general idea is that an intellectual virtue is a, a good character trait that has an intellectual flavor rather than a moral flavor. So if you think about how you think and if you think about how you reason, if you think about how you conduct yourself in a course of inquiry, how you conduct yourself when you're confronted uh, with disagreement with um, someone you respect, if you think about your general habits of the mind, the idea is that some of these are going to be good habits, some of these are going to be good traits, and some of them are going to be bad traits. And so they call the good ones intellectual virtues and they call the bad ones intellectual vices. You can think of some good ones as open-mindedness, as an intellectual virtue, carefulness, impartiality, intellectual courage. These are intellectual virtues in the sense that they're sort of like positive character traits that have an intellectual rather than a moral flavor. And then there would be vices as well, for instance, arrogance, closed-mindedness. In terms then of epistemic virtues, ways that we can think well uh, in the online space, what would you like to see more of? I think it's a very good question. And I think it cuts to the, I think the heart of the question is something about the online environment makes it difficult to behave in certain ways that you would behave in other environments. So a virtue is, as we talked about, reliable across situations. So if you have the virtue of humility, you'll be humble when you're at home, you'll be humble when you're at work, you'll be humble when you're on the bus, you'll be humble when you're on Facebook or on an online environment. But I think, uh, Something about the online environment presents challenges, which means if you have a trait which doesn't quite rise to the level of a virtue, so it's not as reliable as you would like it to be, it makes it very hard to behave in that, behave according to that trait in that, in that environment. And so what I, what I would like to see more of online is a lot of the intellectual virtues. The main one mm-hmm. which comes to mind is curiosity. Mm. I mean, that's something that we should, surely we should all have. Yeah. And I think it's something which people have to, which all people have to a degree and which people exhibit in lots of contexts. So if you're going to a, if you're going to a class or studying or you're having a, a conversation with a friend about a topic you're interested in, or you're doing some research in a different environment or yeah, in lots of different ways, I think people find it easy to be curious, but I actually think something about certain online environments make it very difficult to be curious. Mm, Okay. Say more about that. Yeah. So I guess maybe we could just start off with like, what's curiosity? Like how would you understand what curiosity is? And using these sort of virtue theoretic tools, what we could say is that uh, curiosity is a skill. It's a skill that's conducive to intellectual success. When you have curiosity, you tend to end up with true beliefs or with knowledge about some important topics. It helps you seek out information and care about that. And I think it's becoming harder and harder 
to sustain curiosity online. And I think that the online environment, particularly, I mean, not online in general, but certain popular online environments make it very difficult to behave mm. in a curious way. So I think it would be helpful to say a bit more about like what curiosity is. Okay. And here, here the um, you could have a big debate because philosophers love to theorize about the virtues and coming up with a good definition of a virtue is something of a achievement, just really capturing what a virtue is. Pretty tricky work and always open for debate. But my sort of working definition of what curiosity is, is I think it's being interested in questions, questions which are worthy of your interest and then having the ability to be attentive enough to turn up some fruitful answers to those questions. And then Virtue theorists talk about virtues like the bullseye of a target in the sense that there's very many different ways to miss the bullseye. If you're a little too high or a little too, too low or a little to the left or a little to the right, you don't quite have the trait. Sometimes this is described as if you have the trait in an excessive amount, it doesn't count as a virtue. And if you have the trait in a deficient to a deficient extent, you don't have the virtue. And I think curiosity is like that. So I think too much of a trait very much like curiosity isn't a virtue. And I think too little of a trait very much like curiosity isn't a virtue either. So what I have in mind is if you have too much of the trait that I've just described is you would become sort of like I would describe as hyper curious. So to the extent where you're just entertained by following every whim wherever it takes you. So you can imagine yeah. the person who clicks on endless hyperlinks, who opens a million news stories, uh, who never right. reads them. Uh, and we've all been guilty of going down wormholes. Yeah. And this sort of like excessive trait that I'm imagining is where your curiosity sort of just tips over into being entertained. So to the extent where you can't stay focused on any particular question. And I think, I, um, I think unfortunately, certain inf informational environments on the internet encourage this. I'm thinking particularly of things like news stories, um, Wikipedia, social media environments where pretty much the main thing you can do in these environments is click something. And so if you want to interact with your environment, you click it. And then before too long, you've clicked a million things and you haven't stayed focused on the question that you were interested in and you haven't had enough attention to turn up some inter interesting answers to that question. So I guess I, um, I would wager that I'm sure I'm not the only person who's had the experience of trying to learn about something in a certain online environment like Wikipedia or a news site. And then pretty soon you're reading about a totally different topic. You're reading about, you started off reading about um, some issue of global importance. And then before too long, you're reading about the foundations of quantum physics. And then you're reading about the history of the trombone. And then you feel like you need to get offline and go and rinse your brain out. Yeah, we're sort of pointing towards something here that we, we one, need to be aware of, but two, I think, need to practice, yeah. Yeah. The point is just that true curiosity stays focused on the question hmm. at hand. It's curious about that question. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. Um, and, and I think it's also important that that question is worthy of your interest. So, Tim, you've mentioned curiosity in its excessive form. What about the deficiency? Yeah, I think the main way I see this is if you don't have enough curiosity, you're just very prepared to terminate a line of inquiry way too soon in an online informational environment. So like some classic behaviours might be you just read the headline of a bit of news rather than you just read the news or you just read one source and that's that's the end of it or you just believe what your friends happen to believe on a 
topic. So the idea is you just don't have enough of this trait to really, I guess, care about the question to a certain extent and then seek out what seems like um, useful answers to that question. You just resolve the, resolve the line of inquiry with the first answers that you happen to, to come across. And so I think that one is, again, I think unfortunately there's something about the online environment which makes it easy to do that, much easier than in other environments. So I think it's a lot easier to be curious if you're having a conversation with a friend over a cup of coffee or you're listening to a talk. So it's not the case that because we're on the online environment, we immediately uh, you know, become sort of le less curious. But you're suggesting the environment's not conducive to curiosity, even though some of us may do better online having somewhat mastered curiosity. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I think you need curiosity to care about questions and to seek out important answers to those questions. And if we're doing more and more of our information gathering online, in particular through um, sites like news sites or social media sites or prominent information distributing sites, I think it's very hard to get answers to important questions just through engaging with those environments, I think. Okay, so how do you think that the online environment poses further threats to our knowledge other than just a lack of curiosity? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and it's a question that people are still coming to grips with both theoretically, how we understand these kind of informational environments and practically how we can try to improve them. So I think just one of the biggest traps with these um, these sorts of environments is that they're very conducive to forming what people call epistemic bubbles or echo chambers, much more conducive than um, other forms of social interaction. So it's probably just worth explaining these a little bit because they're, they're terms which are thrown around quite a lot in epistemic bubble or an echo chamber and often in um, popular discourse they're run together such that they mean the same thing. But epistemologists have done a little bit of work recently trying to tease these apart and trying to explain the difference between these these two sort of you might think defects of engaging online and how to how to overcome them right so what are the differences mm. the general idea is that an epistemic bubble is bad but it's not all that bad whereas an echo chamber is very is very bad <laughs> so let me explain why the, the 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 sense in which they're bad so an epistemic bubble is a online informational environment in which a social group leaves out some relevant voices or leaves out some important sources of information. So these can occur very naturally. So just think of the way your Facebook feed is made up of all and only the people that you're friends with, or they can form unnaturally through algorithmic filtering. So that's where an algorithm based on your past behavior only presents you with certain things to consume online, be they news stories or products or something like that. But the, base, the basic idea is that you only have access in a bubble, you only have access to certain sources, people, information, and there's some relevant sources which are left out. An echo chamber is much more serious because in an echo chamber, some sources of information or relevant voices are actively and systematically discredited. So people within the echo chamber are taught not to trust some outside voices who would be relevant on the particular topic. So a classic paradigm of an echo chamber is a cult where you're only allowed to get information from other members of the cult. And then you can see that kind of format, perhaps not with all the other harmful features of a cult replicated in different ways that people can form into social groups, particularly 
online. I think the main sort of hint for whether you're in an echo chamber is whether there's sort of like a guru in your social group. So a guru is someone who really sets the trust level for people outside the group. In the worst case, the guru can tell you to not trust people outside the group and say, I'm really the only expert on everything. You should get your information from me or from these other approved members within the echo chamber. But then you can have sort of this can come in degrees where they don't prevent you from getting information from people outside the group, but they cast doubt on them. They don't recognize their expertise. They encourage you to lower your trust mm. in them. A bit of lack. Like I was thinking a bit of a, a bit of lack of humility there. It just come oh, to me. I'm, I'm the source, so that, that's probably a good a good flag for, for yeah. them as well. Uh, and what are you what are you sort of seeing or your observations uh, given our current situation in in the pandemic? How at risk are we? Are we of this? Are we are we more at risk? Spending more time online? How is this playing out at the moment? I think I think it poses an incredible risk just because people getting their information almost exclusively online and almost exclusively through a few different platforms online most people unless you're pursuing a serious research project or doing a bit of work for a professional role you might have most people get their information from a few news sites a few social media sites um, or places like wikipedia and i think um, a lot of these can suffer from the the defects that i was just saying i think epistemic bubbles are interesting because they're easily formed but even also easily disbanded. So the only problems with the only problem with epistemic bubbles is a lack of coverage. It's just that some relevant voices have been left out. And so even though you might naturally form into an epistemic bubble related to your um, where only the only voices included are in some sense like your friends or your professional colleagues or members of the same social group as you, you can get out of that bubble by just including some other voices. So just actively seeking out um, people who aren't within that set and then the bubbles popped but echo chambers are a lot a lot trickier okay so you've mentioned some red flags perhaps following a guru or hanging out with the same group of friends online what are some of the measures that we can take to avoid epistemic traps yeah i think that's a really good um really good question and one thing you can do is um I'll pretend to be a doctor and we can do a little epistemological checkup. <laughs> There's a couple of questions that you can ask yourself to see how healthy is my online engagement, particularly am I in danger of being in an epistemic bubble or am I in danger of being in an echo chamber? And both are enormous problems if you want to be accessing good information online and understanding that information and making wise decisions based on your understanding of that. I think if you do have the virtue of curiosity, and of course, one sort of feature of virtue theory is that you can have the trait, but not to the extent that it rises to the level of the virtue. So most virtue theorists are like, if you're curious in some situations, but then in a sufficient number of other situations, you're not curious, you don't count as having the virtue. So if you did have the virtue of curiosity, such that it was really reliable, stable, enduring across contexts and times, that'd be a really great way to avoid getting into <laughs> epistemic bubbles right. and echo chambers. I think that'd be uh, like the best preventative medicine. So everything we can do to be cultivating curiosity in our lives in general and making our online experience more conducive 
making it easier to be curious online, I think it is really, really helpful these days. Now, I could be right in suggesting most people don't wake up thinking how they're going to cultivate curiosity, though the majority of us probably don't want to fall into some kind of ignorance. But that might at least be a good place to start, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I had a couple of questions you could ask yourself. So just remember on epistemic bubbles, so the problem with being in an epistemic bubble is that there are important voices and important sources of information which are omitted from your awareness. Mm -hmm. And so that can be, of course, very important because those sources of information and those voices can be can be valuable and can be relevant to the topic that you're trying to understand or have a discussion about. So the way to just to make sure that you're not in an epistemic bubble is to just periodically ask yourself how diverse the content is that you're consuming online. So diversity definitely keeps you from slipping into being in an epistemic bubble. Mm, if, but it's not it's not the goal. It's it's sort of like a check. Yeah. Yeah. The goal is to, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> what is the goal? I mean, everyone would agree the goal is to have true beliefs. Right. Yeah. That, that, to seems, be reliab- that seems fair. Yeah. To be reliably and sufficiently informed about the matter under consideration. And so if you find out that you're only getting your news from your friends on Facebook and you only have friends on Facebook who you went to high school with <laughs> or who live in your suburb or, you know, things yeah. like that. And unfortunately, my friend, you're in an epistemic bubble. And what that just means is that you're in danger of missing out of valuable sources of information. So if you're consuming diverse news sources, if you follow people on Facebook or Twitter or social media or things like that, who come from different walks of life, different religions, different parts of the political spectrum, different um, socioeconomic groups, different countries, um, then that's just a way of making sure, well, at least I'm not in an epistemic bubble. Right. So what about echo chambers? Yeah, the, the echo chamber one is very interesting. And I think for structural reasons, it's very difficult to get someone to leave an echo chamber once they're in it, because they've already, in a sense, done a preemptive attack on you. So oh, no. In the sense of that they, they're not going to trust you. So they trust people within the group. They don't trust people without the group. So if you go up to someone and say, my friend, you're in an echo chamber, this is very serious. They're not going to trust you. So I think it's very difficult to know what you can how you can genuinely help people who are in echo chambers, particularly echo chambers where you can see this is really socially harmful. Like this is um, making our civil life, civic life together a whole lot harder. It's making people make unwise decisions, things like that. But what, but what you can do is that fortunately most people aren't born in an echo chamber. For some reason they decide to enter um, an echo chamber, probably because there's some sort of social rewards attached from joining that group so you might want to be in a certain friendship group or be excited be accepted by a certain um, certain profession or um join a certain moral or religious community or it's, it's like not because that. you like the acoustics <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> yeah, it could like, be. Okay. yeah. Okay. um so there's some kind of social rewards with entering an echo chamber and perhaps at the time you don't realize it's an echo chamber so i think when you're at that decision point you can start to think to yourself is it a good idea for me to enter this social group and or just like you can start to take the temperature of what is the informational arrangement of this social group so here's just two things to look out for very quickly to um think oh perhaps this social group Mm. 
is to some extent an echo chamber. Okay, good. So the first is just what role the group gives expertise and how they recognize expertise. So expertise comes from many different walks of life. It occurs in many different fields. And if the group is not inclined to recognize the expertise of people who are not in the group, I think that's a very bad sign. And then another question is just whether the social group has a guru. So whether they have an opinion maker who has prominent social status, but then doesn't have very much else going for them apart from that prominent social status. They don't have any particular expertise in the field on which they regularly have views or any sort of like peer recognition in the broader community for their for their role. But nevertheless, they have a prominent role within the, the group. And they do things like regulate to some extent how much trust the members of the group place in outsiders or cast doubt on the expertise of outside experts. So if you can see that a social group has a prominent guru, that's a sign that that group is an echo chamber. And you can start to ask questions like, what has that guru ever done to earn the people's trust? And what could the guru do plausibly to lose that trust? And if the answer to both of those questions is nothing, they haven't really seemed to do anything to gain their trust. And it doesn't seem like there's anything they could plausibly do to reduce their trust in the eyes of the social group then you're in an echo chamber, then you've got a problem, yeah. And that may be quite difficult to realise for ourselves, hence the prevention techniques of cultivating genuine curiosity. But what about if we spot someone else in this situation? If you do notice someone who seems to be really in the grips of a guru in terms of there's someone in their social group who is really controlling how much trust they put in people not in their social group, they effectively tell them, don't trust these people, or only trust these people to some extent or something like that, then I think it is very helpful to ask your friend, what has this guru ever done to earn your trust? What's the basis of your trust there? And can you imagine them doing something to get you to reduce your trust in them? I see. So at least definitely planting some kind of question if you have a a deep concern about your friend. Tim, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today, even though I'd love to continue getting more tips from you but it has been great to have you and i thank you for coming on the podcast very welcome thank you for having me and that is tim smart who is a research associate at the institute for ethics and society and we hope that you have found the conversation enjoyable today do join us next time as we continue to explore the ethical questions and some of the virtues that we may need to consider to meet the challenges posed by these extraordinary times my name's nick zoomer and host of the virtues for the time series an Institute for Ethics and Society podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time.